1: Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro potting soil, just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. The Kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So, why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
2: Hey, y'all. Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class, where we sift through the artifacts of history seven days a week. The day was May 5th, 1832. Congress passed the Indian Vaccination Act, which appropriated $12,000 to purchase vaccines and hire doctors to vaccinate Native Americans against smallpox. There had been other small-scale efforts to inoculate Native Americans against the disease on the South and North American continents before. But the 1832 Act was the first piece of federal legislation in the U.S. that was designated to deal specifically with the Native Americans' health issue. The intention of the Act was not just to protect Native Americans from smallpox, though. It was passed in the interest of Native American removal, or the process of removing Native American tribes from their ancestral lands to territory west of the Mississippi River so white people could develop the vacated lands. On top of the shady political motivations of the act, its administration was also plagued by corruption and incompetence. Smallpox is an infectious disease caused by the variola virus, The virus is now eradicated, but back in the 1800s, it was active and highly contagious. Though most people who got the smallpox recovered, 3 out of 10 people infected with the contagious disease died. Symptoms included fever, body aches, skin rash, skin sores, and scabs. European colonization brought smallpox into North America in the 17th century. And by 1832, millions of non-Native peoples had already been vaccinated against smallpox. But smallpox was ravaging Native American populations. In 1830, U.S. Indian agents, as they were called, were authorized to hire physicians on an ad hoc basis to vaccinate or treat Native Americans at their agencies. But that was not enough to deal with the spread of smallpox to Native peoples across the Central Plains. In 1831 and 1832, Indian agents and others who witnessed the smallpox epidemic on the western frontier asked officials for assistance with controlling the disease. President Andrew Jackson was a huge advocate of Native American removal, and in 1830, he signed into law the Indian Removal Act, which resulted in the deadly trek west that became known as the Trail of Tears. Since Congress was in the process of planning to remove tens of thousands of Native Americans into areas that were being seriously affected by smallpox, these outbreaks were a problem. Commissioner of Indian Affairs Albert Herring claimed in his annual report to the Secretary of War that the Chippewa, who had gone through smallpox epidemics, had basically brought the disease upon themselves. This helped convince the federal government that it needed to help Native Americans. There was no precedent for a bill to deal with this kind of problem, but legislation proposed $12,000 for preventing the spread of smallpox along Native American frontiers. When the bill was introduced, Southern congressmen opposed it while Northerners largely supported it. Senators against the bill argued that $12,000 was too much and leaned on the stereotype of Native Americans as savages. But the bill passed on its third reading. On May 5, 1832, the Indian Vaccination Act went into effect. Section 2 of the Act stated, "...and be it further enacted that the Secretary of War be, and he hereby is, empowered to employ as many physicians or surgeons from the Army or resident on the frontier near the point where their services shall be required, as he may find necessary for the execution of this Act." And if necessary, two competent persons to conduct the physicians to the remote Indians who are infected or may be in immediate danger of being infected with the smallpox, whose compensation shall be $6 per day and six men whose compensation shall be $25 per month. Physicians use live vaccine material, typically thread or cotton contaminated with cowpox, to inoculate Native Americans. Secretary of War Lewis Cass administered the program. He decided that the tribes that would get the vaccination were those that were friendly to the U.S., those that had significant roles in the economy, and those that were being forcibly relocated to the West. He also ordered Indian agent John Doherty to limit vaccinations to tribes in the lower Missouri River Valley. Civilian and Army physicians vaccinated people, Yet Native Americans had no say in the creation and implementation of the vaccine program. Beyond aiding in the removal and relocation of Native Americans, the act also accelerated westward expansion and consolidated reservation communities. The money allotted for the vaccination programs was not always used as planned. For instance, Henry Schoolcraft spent $800 of the vaccination funds for a cartographic and geological survey of Chippewa County, vaccinating some Native Americans along the way. Another issue with the program was Lewis Cass's exclusion of the Mandan and other Upper Missouri River tribes, possibly because they were no longer economically important to the U.S. or not considered civilized enough. No Native American groups that had been deemed aggressors were vaccinated, Yet, caste favored Native American nations that were involved in favorable treaties with the U.S. And while many Native Americans welcomed the vaccinations, others refused them before deportation. So there were still large groups of unvaccinated people in the new nations. In 1837 and 1838, thousands of Mandan, Hidatsa, Cree, and other upper Missouri River tribes that had been left out of the act died from smallpox non-Native populations affected were not so devastated. In 1839, another $5,000 was allocated to the Indian Vaccination Act programs to provide for vaccinations after the smallpox epidemic of 1837 and 1838. At least 38,000 Native Americans were vaccinated under the Indian Vaccination Act. I'm Eve Stefcote, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. See you same place, same time tomorrow.
0: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love.
1: Go to nix.com. That's K N I X.com.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast that serves up a fresh slice of history every day. The day was May 5th, 1905. The Stratton Brothers' trial for the murder of Thomas Farrell began. The Stratton's case marked the first time anyone was convicted for murder in Britain based on fingerprint evidence. The study of fingerprints and their use in identification picked up considerably in 19th century Europe. That said, the history of fingerprinting is inextricably linked with colonialism and racism. In 1858, William James Herschel, an Englishman, became an officer in the Indian Civil Service. He was posted to present-day Jahangipur in India. That year, he had a local man place his handprint on a contract in lieu of a signature. Herschel's goal was to keep the man from being able to deny his signature at a later time. Herschel continued to require handprints from locals on contracts, eventually realizing that he only needed prints from the index and middle finger. He was convinced that fingerprints were unique and permanent and believed they could be used to prove someone's identity. Other Europeans also focused on the potential for fingerprints use in identifying suspects and solving crimes. Building on others' work, eugenicist and polymath Sir Francis Galton identified patterns in fingerprints and published a classification system for them. The use of fingerprints in forensics didn't really take off until the turn of the 20th century. Azizul Haq and Him Chandra Bose are credited with creating the Henry classification system for fingerprinting. By 1901, Scotland Yard, also known as the London Metropolitan Police, established a new fingerprint bureau. The next year, the first recorded trial in England that relied on fingerprint evidence took place. In the trial, Harry Jackson was sentenced to several years in prison for a burglary in London after his fingerprint was presented as evidence in court. Just two years later, the first murder trial in England in which fingerprints were used as evidence began. Thomas Farrell was found dead after a robbery, and his wife, Anne, died a few days later. An empty cash box was found in the apartment, as well as two black masks. A fingerprint was found in the cash box, and Inspector Charles Collins from Scotland Yard's Fingerprinting Bureau examined it, but the print didn't match the Farrow's, the officers, or anybody in the bureau's file. But witnesses reported seeing two men in the area on the morning of the crime, and police tracked down and arrested Albert and Alfred Stratton. Their prints were taken, and Alfred's right thumbprint matched the print on the cash box. The brother's trial began on May 5, 1905. The fingerprint was the strongest evidence linking them to the crime scene, and using fingerprints as evidence was still a relatively new technique but Collins explained the classification of fingerprints to the jury and how he had never found two prints that had more than three characteristics in common. In this case, Alfred's print and the cash box print had multiple similarities. The Stratton brothers were found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. Fingerprint evidence has been used in criminal investigations in cases ever since, though techniques and technology in the field have changed significantly. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can send them to us at iHeartMedia.com. You can also follow us on social media at podcast. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow.
0: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
1: I thought
0: in that moment, oh my God. Zumo Play.